Hello and welcome to COVID Stories, a podcast series regarding leadership following the COVID-19 outbreak. I'm your host, Dallas Emerson, Director of Business Development at the IT Guys. Before we get started, these interviews were conducted during the COVID lockdown and were held over Microsoft Teams. Any sound quality issues are the result of social distancing that we're all too familiar with. If you're listening on our site, we're thrilled to have you, but you might find it easier to listen to COVID stories through iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. So joining me today is Kathy McCarthy, Chief Operating Officer for the Texas Academy of Family Physicians. How are you doing, Kathy? I'm doing great. Glad to hear it. Thank you so much for joining us today. So this is the question I ask everybody up front. I'm sure people who've listened to all of these so far are tired of hearing it, but I think it's important that we're all, we all kind of have an idea of when this really started. When did you first know that something was going to have to change? When did you know this wasn't just a a, kind of a media scare? Well, I was definitely in denial. Um, We had a meeting at the end of February and we had one attendee and our attendees are all healthcare professionals. And we had one who canceled and we dismissed her as being silly and, you know, overly cautious. And um, and it was probably a week later where we realized, oh, this is this is a real thing. And we had a meeting scheduled for the first weekend in April. And so we started trying to figure out how real is this? What's going to happen with this meeting? We had 350 people registered. So, you know, they started contacting us. And because they're healthcare professionals, you know, they had a higher level of concern. And some of them that work for large systems were um, prohibited from traveling. Um, So that's when we knew it was real. I think we've continued to learn how long term this is. We kind of thought, well, we close it down for a couple weeks and, you know, everything's going to be great. Um, So we're continuing to learn, but definitely out of that denial phase that we had at the very beginning. So that was, you said the denial phase kind of was in late February and then you threw out a date in in April. So it's kind of the the month, did you mean March or? Well, our meeting was scheduled for April. Okay. Yes. So I would say probably the second first and second week of March is when we started getting the questions and started really grasping that this was a real thing and that it might impact our meeting and kind of scrambled to figure out, to understand what was happening and what our options were. So, I mean, what did you do? Because I know you were in Austin. I don't know, was your meeting going to be in Austin? Our meeting was going to be in Austin. um, And we started a dialogue with the hotel and we have met at this hotel for multiple years and we have several more years under contract. Um, You know, it was new to them too. And so their initial response was, nope, we're ready to go. If you want to cancel, here's your cancellation penalty. Otherwise, you know, we're ready for you. We're going to, you know, have hand sanitizer out and we'll be good to go. And so we kind of kept that discussion going. We weren't getting very far. And then as soon as the um, the city of Austin put in their restrictions, we said, okay, we're out of our contract now. We don't, so we, we didn't have to pay any penalty. Uh, we had already really decided that we were going to cancel the meeting, whether we had to pay the penalty or not. Um, but there was no incentive for us to cancel with the hotel earlier. The penalty wasn't increasing. It was flat. So um, we canceled that meeting. It was a combination of medical education and all of our committees and our board was um, scheduled to meet. 
the education just didn't happen. Um, the committees, we quickly switched um, to online meetings and um, and have have conducted all of our essential business that way. Okay. Yeah, I've spoken to a number of people who had those meetings in early April, and the story is pretty much the same. But I think it's unique from your perspective because you had your members are in the medical field. And so I imagine, as you kind of laid out, maybe the news started like a trickle and then kind of became a flood as time went on. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And our feeling was that even if you know, if it wasn't as bad as it has turned out to be, that for our, to bring a group of healthcare professionals, some of whom are from small communities, into a place where they could potentially get sick and then go back to their communities and infect their patients was just um, irresponsible uh, of us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, how did the transition for your for your organization go? I mean, I'm uh, I'm talking to you. You're in your home, so everybody's working socially distant. Yeah. How did that go from working in the office to working outside the office? So the end of the um, second week in March, we decided to to say that working from home was optional. We wanted people to feel comfortable. Anybody could work at home who wanted to. We feel lucky that we we own our own building and, and our office is set up such that everyone has their own individual office. So we're not we're not in cubicles. We're not necessarily breathing the same area all the time. So we felt a little safer. Um, towards the end of that week, only one person decided to work from home that first week. But in towards the end of that week, I realized that I made it optional for everyone. But the fact that I was in the office every day made it a harder decision for them to work from home. And so at the end of uh, it was on March 20th, um, we said um, working from home is recommended and I will be working from home going forward. So at that point, there was just one person who really wanted to be in the office. And then the next week was when the city put in new restrictions and we said, "Okay, you have to go home. There's (laughs) no option. So um, that transition, you know, because everything is in the cloud and we all have laptops and they're all the same, which makes it easy for troubleshooting. that transition went really well. A lot of the staff chose to bring home their um, secondary monitors and their docking stations and keyboards so that they could work more um, similarly to how they are in the office and to have that, um, you know, we felt like for some of them, their productivity would be um, compromised if they had to work on just their laptop screen. And so, you know, we fully supported that and, um, and, yeah, it's worked out worked out really well. Unfortunately, the day one of work from home, one of our staff's computer just died. The I don't I can't remember exactly what the issue was, but it just it's not really fixable. It's just kind of dead. So luckily, we have some backup computers that we use for travel to our meetings to show PowerPoint presentations and those kind of things. And um, the IT guys were able to quickly um, replicate his computer on our backup one and get him all set up so that he could continue to work remotely. So that was the, and that, you know, happened within a day. So um, that, that was the only hiccup that we've really had with working from home. Everything else has been pretty seamless. I think 
Kathy, you've probably heard me or you've heard Mike say it before, uh, but the computers will die the moment you need them to not die. That's how <laughs> it always goes. Somehow they know. They know. I find it fascinating. You basically had to lead by example to kind of let everybody know it really is okay to work from home. Yeah. Yeah. And over the years, we've had colleagues, other state chapters of our national organization who have completely closed their office and gone virtual. And I have been against that. I'm fearful of that. I have a little bit of old school in me that I want to see people working. I want to see them every day. I like the face-to-face interaction for brainstorming and, and those kind of things. But I'm really kind of won over by working from home. I mean, um, interrupted a little bit less. It's a little more controlled. You know, we schedule a time to have a discussion rather than someone just popping into my office and interrupting. And with Zoom, you know, we've had weekly all staff meetings, um, but we've also done one-on-one meetings that way. And we use Slack. We use our cell phones. We haven't really lost contact with each other. It's just a little more thoughtful. It's not as spur of the moment. Um, but we definitely, you know, obviously 10 years ago, we could not have done this. We would be, you know, I don't know how we would function, but we're in a place where the technology really allows us to do this. And um, I feel really good about working from home now. I, we're not closing our office because we have a lot of equipment and, you know, those kind of things. And we do still, the only issue that we have is that um, our phone, we don't have the technology on our phones to forward to people's homes and so and our phone does still ring right now it's not ringing a whole lot and it goes to voicemail the voicemail is forwarded to a staff person and they call people back or email them and it's worked out just fine yeah it's it's interesting if you didn't have that physical infrastructure in place uh, could you see yourself could you see Taffy? eventually becoming an all virtual organization. Do you see that as a potential even after this is all done? Um, I don't, not in the short term. I, maybe, maybe five years from now I would feel differently, but um, I think partly because we own that building and we do, um, we have, a, we own a company that does hands-on procedure training. So we have all of the models and the supplies, the, you know, needles and scissors to do um, suturing and all of that kind of stuff. We have all of that in our office. And so um, I think we would, I, you know, as long as we own that company, we need a place to house all of that stuff and to keep it organized. So that makes a lot of sense. I found that tends to be the leading difference between associations who are looking at maybe we can go fully virtual and associations who are kind of champing at the bit to return is those who do a lot of hands-on education. So, you know, on this subject, obviously we don't know what tomorrow looks like. We don't know what next week looks like. We don't know what's going to happen in a month. And a lot has changed. What specifically do you see, what changes do you see in uh, the Academy of Family Physicians that might stick around after we return to something resembling normal? Virtual meetings, definitely. Um, You know, we've had, we have a large number of committees in our board and they meet, um, the committees all meet twice a year in person. The committee members are from across the state. The committee meetings are 
two to three hours long. So people drive from West Texas to come to a three-hour meeting, and, you know, sometimes they do other stuff while they're there, but it's not an efficient use of their time. Um, and so doing, having to do our interim, April, the April meeting is our interim session, having to do our interim session meetings virtual, we've had probably better attendance, um, you know, really some good discussions. We've focused our discussion, so the committee meetings haven't been three hours long, but I've been kind of amazed. Our our members, our family physicians, so they're struggling to, you know, take care of their patients, keep them out of the hospital where, you know, there are um, lots of, where they're trying to save that space for COVID patients, so trying to keep everybody healthy, trying to keep their practice open with the, the changing economic realities for them, um, but they have been willing and able to participate in our meetings and um, it's given them an opportunity to connect with each other and to kind of hear from each other what's going on in their neck of the woods. And um, so we'll still have some live meetings, but I think it's changed our thinking about it and our members thinking about it too. And in terms of what are the things that we have to do live? What are the things that really the kind of some of those strategic discussions that I think work best when you're in the same room and what are the routine business things that we can just do online and save our time and, you know, allow people who don't want to get in the car and drive to Austin um, to participate from their homes. And what we, I've spoken to a number of different uh, people who work with or within the uh, medical I don't want to say necessarily industry field who serve yeah. uh, the people in the medical field. How has the nature of your work changed or has it changed at all? Has, has Taffy's uh, work changed? Yeah. Well, really mostly for our CEO um, is um, more the public face of the organization and his job is completely changed and really trying to help our members figure out how to keep their practice doors open, how to get, um, personal protective equipment, um, how to understand new rules that, that come down, um, advocating for, um, you know, when this all started, um, a virtual visit with a physician was reimbursed at a much lower rate than an in-person visit. So not only for some of them did the volume of visits they have decrease dramatically, but the visits they had that were virtual, they were being paid a fraction of what they were paid. You know, and they've got rent and staff and expenses just like every other small business. Um, and they, you know, feel a responsibility for their patients, especially those with chronic diseases that, you know, like I said, they really want to keep them out of the hospital. Um, so really advocating for those payment changes to help them understand different small business loan opportunities for them. Um, you know, those kind of things, that's really changed. And that's been a focus of our communication, too. It's um, most of the things that we've we've done in um, our communications have been around how to survive this pandemic. Um, and then doing, you know, there's partly the business side and then there's the clinical side. And last night we had our very first um, continuing medical education webinar on COVID-19 with an infectious disease physician. Um, who just, you know, did a great presentation and then answered questions for another half an hour of physicians that are, you know, trying to figure it out just like everyone else. Um, okay, so, yeah, the, the, the nature of your work has changed quite a bit. Okay, so for you personally, as the COO 
of this organization, what has been the easiest and what has been the hardest part of making this transition from kind of life as usual to life as anything but usual? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say the easiest was getting everyone up and running at home. It really, you know, they everybody plugged in, they got connected, that, and and they're able to sort of keep up with their normal tasks. Um, and then, you know, we have some additional things going on because of the crisis. So that part was, was much easier than I thought. I thought there would be more hurdles of people having computer problems or trouble connecting or, you know, and that's really been seamless. Um, the hardest, the hardest has been the uncertainty. You know, a lot of what we do and a lot of what other associations do is meeting, is continuing medical education. Um, we have existing contracts. We've got a meeting um, scheduled for the end of July that we're, you know, not sure that's going to happen. We, you know, have something in September. We have a national meeting that we go to in October. We have our annual meeting in November and then another meeting in December. And we are, so we're struggling and I'm personally struggling with planning for those things to happen and planning for those things to not happen at the same time. And that's, we've just had to kind of bifurcate a little bit in our brains and say, okay, I'm going to spend 90% of my time assuming that um, our, our, you know, all of our meetings are going to happen, but I'm also thinking about, and, and not only are they going to happen, but we're going to have to do them differently. So how, can we get bigger ballroom space so that we can space people out more? Can we make sure that um, when hotel staff brings food that it's either prepackaged or they're serving it so that there isn't a self-service buffet with people getting their germs all over the utensils and things? Um, what other things do we do we do? I mean, how do you how do you keep the attendees as safe as you can? You know, and we're as we moved into it, we realized there isn't going to be a vaccine or a cure in the next six months and the next year. You know, so do we just um, cancel everything or do we start to move forward and figure out the safest way to do that, the way that people will feel comfortable? Um, and and then at the same time thinking about, okay, what is our cancellation clause with this particular meeting? Do we have a relationship with the hotel? Do we think they're going to work with us on rescheduling it for another year or doing something different with that? What's this going to all mean to the bottom line, um, you know, at the end of our fiscal year? It's a lot of, a lot of contingencies to plan for. And I think that's kind of where everything is headed is heading just toward every association or every organization, but especially associations, since they are people driven, we're going to need to have a whole barrage of plans for every possible event. Uh, I could see people in your position, people in the meeting planning position being just overwhelmed with that. Uh, I'm pleased to hear the technology aspect was so easy. <laughs> so, do you sense, you know, you're just on the subject of the association world in general, do you sense a shift in mentality? You know, there was kind of the first phase of what's going on, and there's a second phase of panic and survival. Do you sense that there's now a shift toward going, well, what are we supposed to do now? 
I think so. And I think for, for a lot of people, it's what's permanent. And I like we just talked about the virtual meetings. It, that's permanent. Um, we were we really had uh, we had had one task force that met virtually. We had never done any virtual education. And now we've you know done one for ourselves. We're also facilitating calls for our local chapters. We have small local chapters around the state and we're helping them meet because even though they're local, they can't they can't get together in person. Um, you know, we're we know that we can do committee meetings online. Um, and so some of those things are permanent. Some of those will be in addition to what we did when we get back to quote unquote normal. Um, you know, adding that online education for people who don't want to travel and and being able to reach all of our members with that. Um, I think that will continue. Um and so I think that's where a lot of people, a lot of the discussion that I've heard is, you know, what's the permanent change here? How is the world com like permanently shifted? And we had um, a discussion at our staff meeting last week about that, what people thought was was permanent um, or at least really long term. And I think, you know, they also thought that um, thinking about safety at meetings was going to be a permanent thing. We really never thought about you know, people bring in the flu and which I'm sure happened. I'm sure there were people who attended our meetings who had the flu. I think the real difference with the coronavirus is how um, contagious people are before they feel sick. And, you know, I, I think that that's kind of shifted things. And, you know, maybe just for for coronavirus, but, you know, there there will be future pandemics. You know, even when we have a vaccine or a cure for this, there's going to be more. And so I think that's a kind of a permanent shift for us is, you know, how do we um, create environments that keep people safe? Well, and I imagine, too, with your membership, I mean, doctors just tend to skew a little older than the general population. And so I imagine there's even a, a heightened level of, well, and as you said, too, they're also taking care of patients. So you, you don't want to have your doctors get hit and you don't want to have your doctors bring that sickness, whatever it is, the coronavirus or the flu to their members. So yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I'd, I I think we're all becoming mini epidemiologists all of a sudden. And, <laughs> yes. Uh, it makes so much sense. It's something we're going to all have to be worried about going forward. Um, maybe that'll be one of the upsides to all of this. Yeah. Not to say that it's been worth it, but one of the silver linings, I should say, is that we're going we're yeah. to be better at public health in general. Yeah. One of the funny things, family physicians are huggers. So our meetings are filled with hugs and, you know, handshakes and all of that. And, you know, that was when we had our staff discussion last week is how do we have a meeting where we don't hug people? You know, <laughs> I mean, I just it's hard to imagine um, after, you know, the all of the years we've worked together because we have a lot of the same people that come to our meetings so we've you know we've gotten to know them and um it's just a natural instinct when you see some of them to give them a big hug and it's for the time being we're going to have to figure out how to stop that instinct so you talk about being uh you know a chapter or a part of a larger mm -hmm. uh, body have you seen are there differences in the association from what you're hearing from these other associations in other states versus what we're seeing here in Texas? Um, I think it's all pretty similar. I think everybody moves at their own speed, um, you know, with some of them very quickly shifting everything online or canceling things. We were we probably were a little slower to do that. Um, 
Dave. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's kind of the same everywhere, and we've uh, we have a good network of um, chapters, state chapters, and so we we collaborate. And they've the, our nationals actually provided some education for us, knowing that everyone is working from home. They've done like some Zoom training and you know help on turning your meetings virtual, and we are all very collaborative and share you know our our experiences and our ideas and things. So. Um, yeah, I don't think that it's dramatically different everywhere. I think some of the smaller chapters just don't have the capacity to do more than they're doing. And so, um, you know, they've, uh, they're doing all they can, but it's with a staff of one or less than one, some of them are, are part-time. It's, um, you know, to try oh, to keep up with, I know, to keep up with their member needs and trying to figure out online meetings and make all of that stuff happen is is really difficult. Um, we're lucky we have a great team. We have a lot of longevity and experience, and they've all had such a really positive attitude to figuring out how to make things work from home and kind of rolling with the punches where I, you know, keep saying, like, this meeting is going to happen unless it doesn't happen, but we're going to assume that it's going to happen. So we're going to keep marketing it and we'll just see what we'll, you know, we'll be prepared if it doesn't. And everyone's just sort of taken it all in stride and, um, you know, been eager to help. And they all have relationships with our members. And so they're concerned about how they're doing. And, um, uh, you know, I think our success in this crisis is due partly to the great team that we have. It makes a lot of sense. I think the association world is blessed in a certain way because so many people who work in the association world have lived in that world for so long. There's a lot of institutional knowledge, a lot of just human capital that yeah. some, some industries just don't have. Yeah. So and, how and, you... and the relationship to your job is different than if it's for a for-profit company. We don't, we work for an organization, but we work for a mission and we work for a group of people that you know, are doing good work in, in their lives. That's a great point. That's a great point that this is not just about a career or about, you know, the, the bottom line that there are people involved. And that is something that I do love about the nonprofit uh, world is that it is a different mindset. Yeah. So uh, how do you set expectations for your staff? You know, when you can't, have any expectations to set? How do you yeah. how do you kind of keep everybody on the same page? That's a good question, and I think that's probably um, that's been a bit of a challenge. I mean, because our I mean our newest staff person is probably a year and a half in, um, but most of our staff are more than ten years. They kind of know what their job is, um, and they know what their responsibilities are, and so they've been kind of going after that, um, and the newer staff have supervisors that they communicate with more directly. Um, and I think it's just communication. Um, it's hard because I think we still see this as temporary. Um, I think my expectations have been lower. I, I want them to, to do the things that, that we have to do to keep the organization and to spend part of their time thinking about, you know, how, how we move forward, what are the permanent changes, how they can be part of that, learn new things. We've all learned how to use Zoom. Um, and so th those are the expectations that I have. And, and, but you really have to be, um, patient and understanding that 
for some of our staff, they're home with their kids who are out of school. And so, you know, I was clear right up front that I, you know, expected them to continue to work uh, roughly the same number of hours, but that schedule may look different. They may want to get up and work for a few hours before their kids are awake and then spend some time with their kids and then log back in. And, you know, I expected them to just sort of keep up with that and, and communicate with their supervisor on, you know, major changes to their schedule. But, you know, we're all navigating a new world. I live by myself, and so I've, I have less distraction. Um, I The first week or so, I really, the struggle was more on the other end of I have to stop working, um, you know, just because I can work and, uh, you know, nonstop doesn't mean that I should. Um, so, yeah, expectations have been, are difficult, and I think because we, um, still consider it temporary. They're a little different than if we decided, yes, we're definitely going to close our office and make everybody virtual. I think I'd have to do a lot more thinking about how you set those expectations and um, keep that communication open. You know, one of the things I've always thought about um, association jobs is I've never done the same job two years in a row. It's always changing. I'm always coming up with new projects, new initiatives, um, and changing my workload. So it's hard to say this person knows what their job is and they, you know, as long as they get it done, it doesn't matter how many hours they work. Well, if they're just doing what they did last year, that may not be enough. You know, we need to continue to grow and, um, you know, revise the way we're doing things, look for efficiencies, look for better ways to communicate. So um, that I, if this were long term, I would need to think more about how you continue to motivate and how you continue to communicate about um, constantly looking for ways to serve our members better and, and do more um, and, and uh, maintain that productivity at home. So if you could offer, and, and I want to be cognizant of our time, uh, I want to make sure that I'm being respectful. So if you could offer any executives out there, any leaders out there, be they grizzled veterans or just total newbies, any advice about leading and planning in the coming days, what would it be? I think um, communication and transparency, um, you know, both with your leaders, but also with your staff of, you know, these are the things that we're, that we're taking into consideration. Um, this is how we're making decisions. This is when we're going to we're planning to make decisions. And I think that gives people a level of comfort that, you know, this isn't happening in a back room that, and then, and they're not involved in, in decisions about the organization. Um, I think that gives some confidence to, um, it shows our, our comfort with the staff to share to be as transparent and share that much information, but also can give them more confidence in in us as leaders. I think that's fantastic. That transparency during this time is so key. Kathy, I want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been great. I know that there's people out there who are going to hear this and go, yes, that's how I'm feeling, or yes, this woman's got it. So thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Dallas. It was really, uh, as you as you promised, it was cathartic to talk about all of this. So <laughs> I appreciate um, appreciate talking to you. All right. You have a great day and stay safe. Thanks. You too. Thank you for listening. 
I'm Dallas Emerson with the IT Guys, and this has been COVID Stories. I'd like to remind listeners that you have a COVID story, and we want to hear it. Send me an email at dallas at itguysusa.com, and let's set up a time to talk about your COVID story. Your story may be just the thing someone needs to hear. Thanks again.